0: This is In Conversation from Network Reorient, in association with Reorient General and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. In the second of our episodes, marking the launch of the new Critical Muslim Studies website, I sit with Professor Say to discuss Critical Muslim Studies, a discussion that touches post Orientalism, Eurocentricism, and Ukraine. Assalamu alaykum all. Welcome to another episode of In Conversation, a program of Network Reorient, part of the Critical Muslim Studies project. Today, I have with me Professor Salman Saeed, and we shall be going through uh, the other two of the uh, tenets or pillars, if you will, of uh, CMS, uh, Critical Muslim Studies, I should say, CMS for short, um, in this expansion series, as it were, of our original uh, first three um, episodes. So, Professor Said, uh, I want to first ask about the pillar or tenant, uh, <laughs> whichever suits us at any particular time, uh, of post Orientalism. What it, What does post Orientalism mean? Obviously, um, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the ideas of Orientalism. Um, but what is post-Orientalism? What does that actually mean? What does it do?
1: Well, thank you, Hizar. Um Let me start off by saying I'm not sure whether pillar or tenant is the right expression. <laughs> I think maybe gambit might be a better one, yeah. but obviously halal kind of gambit in this sort of situation. <laughs> um, I think post-Orientalism is really the, the background for the formation of an endeavor that we describe as critical Muslim studies. And it's a very, very simple proposition. After reading Orientalism and the other critiques uh, of Orientalism, some which succeed Said's work and some which were um, kind of before Said's work um, in a way, but the critique of Orientalism. What do we do about the production of knowledge about things to do with Muslims and Muslimness? And as I've said, you know, a number of times, one of the things is that it's interesting how the critique of Orientalism has generated two kinds of responses. One response has been to simply um, dismiss it as a critique and try and say, well this is not true, there isn't really any kind of um, anything that we can call or, um, Orientalism, which has shaped the knowledge production about the Orient. Mm. And there are many, many examples of doing that. And the other one is that, which perhaps has gained a little more traction, is something like, yes, uh, there is a critique of orientalism it is significant it's important Um, but let's just carry on doing the way things we are doing we've been doing them and hope that all things work out in the end so i think one way to think about critical muslim studies would be a series of reflections and meditations on what are the consequences of taking the critique of Orientalism seriously. And that is more of a challenge than people expect because Mm. Orientalism isn't just the idea that there is distortion or there is bias. It is also at its most radical, the idea that the Orient isn't disfigured by the study, which we call Orientalism but is in itself an invention of Orientalism. And therefore, to dismantle Orientalism means dismantling the Orient. Now, how this often presents itself is when people start saying, well, um, we need to get rid of um, the idea of these unified entities and we search for the heterogeneous moment and everything. The trouble with this quest for heterogeneity is that often completely obscures the relations of power involved in determining what is heterogeneous and what is homogeneous and what is considered to be necessarily heterogeneous, etc. So mm. you'll often hear things like, there's no such thing as Islam, or there are There's no such thing as a Muslim community. Mm. Um, You don't see the same focus on the kind of idea of there's no such thing as the West.
0: Mm. Um, Is this connected to the idea about, and I know you talk about this uh, in your work, um, especially Fundamental Fear, Uh, does this link to the ideas around the ideas of multiple Islams? And yes. Anti-Orientalism. I was, this was going to be yeah. my next question, like, why can't we be anti-Orientalists yeah. instead of post-Orientalists?
1: No, 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 this is, this is absolutely right. Um, the anti-Orientalist position is the shift from the idea of um, one Islam, which was is considered to be characteristic of Orientalism, mm. that basically you can explain everything by reference to Islam, Um, to the idea that there are lots of multiple manifestations of Islam. There are multiple Islams, there are multiple communities, etc. There's no unifying principle. They're all doing these things differently. And this also then has a journalistic or a current affairs kind of analogue when you sort of point out, well, um, a country like, um, you know, Iran is in competition with Afghanistan, therefore it shows there's no such thing as Muslim community, or Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are pursuing a war in Yemen, which again you know, undermines this idea there is anything called Muslimness. So there's all of these currents to show this um, disassociation between these ideas. So the idea then becomes that these are that islam is is too broad a label to describe accurately what these lived experiences of ordinary muslims may be so the anti uh, anti-orientalist position then is simply a kind of a reversal of the notion that orientalism saw everything in terms of this grand figure of islam and therefore you could explain everything by islam mm. um to This position, where Islam is simply a mask, um, and really the most important things are happening at at another level, and Mm. normally this is socioeconomic or ethnic um, affiliations, etc., which are being played out. So it's that shift. So that anti Orientalism and Orientalism are in the same uh, epistemological plane in that Mm. way. Okay, Um, I want
0: to bring it back actually to something that you said before I kind of came in with the anti Orientalist thing. Um, You said that um, for post Orientalists, the Orient is not about Orientalism distorts um, an existing picture of the Orient, is that the Orient as we know it is an invention of Orientalism.
1: What are the implications of that? Well, I think that's where critical Muslim studies steps in to reflect on those implications. Because mm. one implication of that would be well, um, to what extent is the category of um, that you know we use it in orientalism? If it's a distortion, then what is what are we actually dealing with?
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Um, so, for example, take the recent work which talks about the uh, Muslim world being a category that emerges really in the context of the British Empire in the 19th and late 19th and early 20th centuries, right? And they would say, well, there is no such thing as a Muslim world prior to this moment. And you could say, well, that may be true, but it's also irrelevant. Mm. Because what you would be talking about is the idea of narrating different historical sequences. And there may be different ways of telling those historical sequences, different ways of telling those stories. Um, But you need to reflect upon how you tell those stories. Um, You need to be aware of those kind of consequences of that. So I think um, the idea of being post-Orientalist then is really saying the critique of Orientalism leads to a challenge, which means that the existing... um, armory of intellectual and academic tools may not be adequate to deal with and that we need to investigate whether they are fit for purpose to do to help us understand the things we want to understand and in that case if um, the orient is an invention then what other inventions can we have to enable us to tell a history of the world from different points of view, to tell a more plural history of the world, to recognize the irreducible heterogeneity of planetary uh, Mm -hmm. narratives. And that, I think, is the kind of project that, you know, and it gets very, very quickly lost into this attempt to have only a kind of West-toxicated historical imagination Um, and and that's why when you say if the Orient is an invention then what happens when we take that seriously to the way that we narrate narrate the history of the present as a history of the world coming to be what it is today Mm
0: -hmm. okay Um, I want to ask maybe a bit of a strange question but it's something that I've come across um, in the past Um, isn't there a danger of when you say that the Orient as we know it is simply a product of Orientalism, isn't there a kind of then danger of falls, falling into some kind of, for example, I don't know what to call it, to be honest, um, like a Muslim pessimism, I guess, where you can never really escape Orientalism or Westernese and it's just always going to be there and, you know, everything, this all, this critical Muslim study stuff is just you know, it's doomed to just repeat the West toxified kind of thing, it's going to just re-churn that. What would you say to people who hold that view? Uh,
1: I mean, I think there's a. you're right to point out that there is a risk rather than a danger of people doing that. And I think certain variations in critical Muslim studies often fall into that position. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think it's important to have critical Muslim studies, which doesn't fall into that yeah. Uh, pessimism uh, uh, as you put it so splendidly because ultimately that pessimism is really not just a pessimism of the possibility of muslimness it's actually the pessimism of the possibility of um, being autonomous uh, mm-hmm. the pessimism of uh, it's a poss- pessimism about the political but also it's a retreat from it's a kind of a fatalism in a way which mm-hmm. just needs another orientalist trope so here's the thing it seems to me that it is quite possible for you to make the argument that you and I are now conducting this uh, conversation in English. Mm. And we could make the argument that because we're conducting this in English, it tells a particular story of the world, it tells a particular story of our biographies, it tells a particular story about knowledge production and how that circulates, etc. However, despite all of that, and all of those limitations and all of those challenges, we still have the possibility of thinking about how to conduct conversations uh, around Muslimness through this different language, in a way. Now, the thing to do is recognize the contingency of that moment and say that, you know, inshallah, at a certain point in time, maybe those intellectual conversations will be conducted in Swahili, or maybe they'll be conducted in, in, in another language, mm. that the language is, tells a story of a particular dispensation and distribution of power uh, and its sedimentation. And therefore, there is no way of stepping out of that, but you are not doomed to repeat the same reconfigurations of power. So I think one of the biggest mistakes that often gets I suppose mistakes is the wrong way of putting it. But the thing that annoys me the most is perhaps a better way of putting it. Is this, ultimately, I would argue, a liberal, deep-seated liberalism in which is critical of power that challenges, but completely acquiescent about the power that is
0: Mm.
1: already in place. It doesn't even see it. And, you know, when we have conversations with uh, many people of color or many Muslims, or you can often get caught up in that dialectic that you see the resistances are deemed to be unnatural evocations of power and authority and violence. And the actual habitualized violent violations, uh, completely naturalized or never seen. I was listening to a podcast the other day um, and it was about the Middle East and one of the the, the, the interlocutor was asking this question really, is things like, for example, um, why is it that so many uh, Islamic countries have so many civil wars in the last 20, 30 years. And neither the interlocutor or the uh, respondent pointed out the history of interventions mm. which have actually been instrumental in overthrowing and uh, destabilizing the regimes. And that's not to say that's the only picture, but that is a major factor. Yeah. So if you only see that At that moment, and you see the same kind of instance going in, um, you know, in in sort of commentary which talks about, um, uh, you know, how um, how take Condoleezza Rice going on American TV saying that um, when asked, invading another country like uh, Putin has done so uh, and occupying it is a is, in her opinion, a war crime. Mm. Now. You know, after a while, after you stop laughing and rolling your eyes kind of thing, you kind of realize this is this is an actual cognitive problem here. This is not just mm-hmm. a bit of irony, which is lost on that. And this is not the only example. You can see how much commentary that's been going on that yeah. what Russia has done invading Ukraine. And this is not to excuse or not, but people don't seem to have a straight face. Uh, how can they say this with a straight face that, you know... Um, invading countries is wrong, what has the United States and Britain and its allies been doing since the last 20 years? And similarly, the same regimes which uh, only about a few months ago refused to allow refugees escaping from war Mm. are now saying that these refugees must be given absolute um, hospitality. Again, I'm very happy that they're doing this, but there's a certain kind of Uh, How can I say, there's a sharpness of the turn, Mm. which is bewildering for those of us who are not caught up in this kind of um, embrace of whiteness and the effectiveness of whiteness in that way. And to see that these universal values have always been um, stabilized, intercut. Through uh, by racism, it's never been racism has never been external to those expressions. So to go back to the point that you know you're making in this kind of thing about this pessimism, I think the pessimism comes from a acquiescence into a, a, a kind of a mentality which simply acts like there is no way of changing the configuration of world history, and in other words, the end of history. And this is remarkable that everyone. As I've said, everyone sneers at the thesis of the end of history, but they all believe in it. Mm. You know, from um, and I think that's perhaps critical Muslim studies. Then is 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 a, is a serious endeavor to say, well, actually, if you don't believe in the end of history, and here's the reason why you shouldn't, then what kind of things can you imagine going forward?
0: Mm. And I think the
1: <clears throat> what kind of things you can imagine going forward
0: ties in very nicely with my next question, and I'm going to have to rewind back a bit <laughs> again. Um, so obviously, you started with the uh, the response to my last question about you know the Muslim pessimism, I guess we can call it, um, with you know we're speaking in English now, and obviously, inshallah, in the future maybe there'll be a new language that we speak in, and this reminded me of a debate which I read quite a few years ago now, actually. Um, and it was presented in Nugugi wa Thiongo's, um Decolonizing the Mind, which was his last work in English. He literally says at the beginning, right, this is my last work in English. I will not be writing in English ever again. And he actually critiques another scholar, I, can't, I think it is actually uh, Mbembe. I think mm. it is, where he said, uh, Mbembe said this, that we can create a new English to serve our purposes. What do you think of that? Could CMS work off a new English that serves the purposes of those marked as the other or the rest?
1: I mean, a lot of Commonwealth literature, a lot of what's described as post-colonial literature, works on that conceit. I mean, Mm. and I don't think it's a question about whether you can have um, English or French or whatever to do that purposes. I think it's more, what purpose do you actually have? And mm. too often those people who say that they want a, a, let's say in, in a, the largest uh, English speaking country in the world is India. Yeah. Um, and the point isn't, you know, only that there are people who speak English, who, you know, in, in different ways, it is what is the purpose of speaking, and I think this goes back to the point about Wittgenstein that you know language should be seen as a tool, not as a mirror of reality. I'm mixing up my philosophers here, but I think the point holds um, <laughs> that it is not the purpose of that language is the tool. Of what we want to do with it, and the main issue for me is that all of these projects—not all of them, but many of them—it's never clear what the purpose of that is. It is yeah. If you had a purpose, saying that I need to use this set of vocabularies to achieve this goal which is different than the hegemonic objectives which have been sort of privileged naturalized etc then i think it's a very different proposition than saying that i need to speak this language um or use these um concepts to simply find myself included in the ongoing conversation mm. And I think this is why I would say to you that it's a really important question. And the question must be, what is the purpose? What are you trying to do here? And, and, and that's and when you ask people what they're trying to do, um, not everyone is very clear about what they're trying to do um, in relation to what kind of project that they may have in mind um, and how to bring that about. What I do know is that all successful projects of political transformation have always been able have always had to base themselves, like poems, on an existing language while trying to invent a new vocabulary. Um, and I don't see that changing. Um, but so the real issue isn't the vocabulary that you use; is the it's project that you have, is the purpose that you have. Yeah. That you have. Okay. And this is why I think that's kind of. Uh, almost a caricature of the Wah- a wahhabist position becomes um pointless because in a sense that you know you can't reduce everything to the moment of its purity would be something like for example um coinage or bows and arrows or you know helicopters um then what is the nature of these where do they fit in are they islamic or not islamic it depends on who, what purpose they're being used for. Mm. Uh, in themselves, they have no value um, one way or the other. Um, it is the purpose that they're being put together. And that's why I'm, I'm I'm more open to the possibility of thinking through variety of inheritances, intellectual inheritance and spe- um, ways to come to the position, but also aware that in doing that, you're taking luggage with you, and that needs to be pointed out, and you say, like, um, you know, if I do this, these are the things that I've locked myself into. But that's an ongoing process, rather than saying axiomatically, I will not do this and do that. By the way, I think, you know, the decision not to write in English, I think it's a very bold one, and I think it's fine, and I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. even critical of it. Um, but for me, it's the purpose and the project and how to achieve that purpose, which is the key, And then these other things are means to that. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, Okay. I think let's move on to the uh, second gambit, as it were, the halal gambit, um, as it were. And that is of Eurocentricism. So could you please give us an explanation of what Eurocentricism is? But also, sticking to what we've just said, what purpose does CMS have for... Eurocentricism are fighting against Eurocentricism, as the case maybe.
1: Okay, so I mean I think Eurocentricism belongs to a family of concepts, which you could include white supremacy, you could include Westernese, you could include um, you know the convictions around uh, the superiority of whiteness or whiteness itself. So you can see that there's a, some of these concepts are aligned with each other. Um, Mm. They reflect different intellectual traditions and have different emphasis, but there is some sense that they're all part of the same kind of family. And I think what we need to do is distinguish two ways of thinking about Eurocentricism. So one would be simply to see Eurocentricism as a quality that someone uh, who is completely immersed in Europeanness will only be able to comport themselves through their Europeanness, through their point of view. I mean, I think that's another way, it's just another form of ethnocentrism. But I think, you know, that's uh, a that's fairly common phenomenon in a sense that the, the, what we have, these ways, ways of understanding are the ways that we already inhabit and they limit us. yeah. I think the more broader and more kind of uh, interesting prospect of that is the idea of Eurocentricism naming an epistemological project which erases the possibility of it being ethnocentric. And the way that I've described it in the past, that Eurocentricism is an attempt to uh, suture the relationship between an interpretation of europeanness with an interpretation of what is considered to be un- mm. and it has to work harder when those two uh, dimensions become dis- disarticulated and it can work very very quickly so for example with the uh, russian invasion of the ukraine it's been very quick that suddenly it's become, um, this is a defense of our Western values, uh, we're defending freedom. You've uh, you preempted
0: my next question, um, so I'll, I'll just ask it. You're going into it anyway. Um, you've mentioned whiteness as being central to Eurocentricism, and we've already spoken about Ukraine, and you're about to go into it again, which <laughs> tells me my line of questioning is on the li- right track as well. Um, well. Maybe I'm repeating myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, is it's can you like expand on this? What do you mean by so? We've spoken about the accepting of certain refugees and the non-acceptance of other types of refugees. But could you expand upon this? How are whiteness and what's happening in Ukraine connected in a more explicit
1: way? So very, very quickly. So um, the idea of the West (laughs) as the source of uh, um, liberty, freedom, all that is good in the world, right? Something which rejects xenophobia, which rejects uh, particularities, which rejects... Mm. um, humiliations are visited upon individuals um, and individual autonomy. Mm. That is a central idea of what it means to be Western and Western values, right? And so you can see that in one way to think about, it, and leaving aside people like Condoleezza Rice and others for a minute, that uh, what you have is the invasion of a sovereign nation, violence perpetuated against civilians, or civilians being caught up in that violence. Um, and it is very, very clear who the aggressor is, who the defender is. And it's very, very clear what the principles are. Mm. But then you start seeing little odd things. So one, quite graphically, is this, that when we, if we're going to talk about universal values and the West being a vehicle for universal values, then how do we explain... Um, students and visitors and inhabitants and residents of the Ukraine of color, uh, people with black and brown skins being stopped from going on, getting on trains at various borders, both by the Ukrainians and sometimes by other authorities. So already very, very graphically, we've seen the undercutting of that universalism through a very direct sense of racism. Yeah, that's quite clear. Um, Then we have the kind of spectacle of countries involved in invasion and occupation demonstrating against invasion and occupation. And of course, what allows them to do this differently is by erecting this uh, barrier between what constitutes the West and what is the non-West. And the West then has a special... Dispensation, it does. Its wars are just. Its violence is measured. It's um, it is blessed and anointed by history, God or whatever. That whatever it does has no negative implications, or if it does, it does it mournfully, right? And mm-hmm. and you suddenly have the recreation of all these kinds of tropes, which had been up till the restricted to the last you know, since the end of the Cold War, mainly to third world, what we used to call third world figures. Mm. So suddenly there's a thing about Putin, is a war, Is he a war criminal or not? Uh, whereas, you know, um, Tony Blair, the parliament has, uh, you know, I don't know parliament, but certainly people have seen the attempts to label Tony Blair as a war criminal in Britain more of a joke among mm. left-wing fringe groups, et cetera, rather than a serious proposition. So, I think what I would say to you is this that whiteness mm. so is it's almost impossible to imagine Europeanness at its heart, which doesn't have whiteness central to it. And whiteness is not just pigmentation uh, or anything like that, it's not even a history it is a particular form of comportment and part of it it links up with the notion of um, its relationship to the rest of the world, how whiteness determines how you are in the world. And you are often assumed to be, or should be in positions of um, order giving Mm. rather than order receiving. And I mean, order both as a kind of a command and order as an arrangement. So, that it seems to me is a critical factor that whiteness plays itself out, and and you can see it being replayed by, you know, politicians um, saying, "What we, of course, these we are welcoming these refugees because they are white and Christian. Um, homes are being opened for them. It's it's mm-hmm. natural, but the thing is that that naturalness is belied by the claims of universalism." which is also considered to be central to the uh, European project and the Western project itself. Okay, right. Again, you've (laughs) touched upon
0: the next question I wanted to ask. And this was to do with universalism. And I think um, in Recalling the Caliphate, you quote uh, Wallerstein, if I recall correctly, Mm -hmm. where he talks about the double bind of universalism of Europe. So I was... Uh hoping you could explain this in relation to what we're seeing. You've kind of started to do this, but obviously a bit more explicitly in terms of what we've seen with our example of Ukraine.
1: I mean, we, this is becoming a conversation about the Ukraine, which I think is yeah. fine. <laughs> it's, it's it
0: just is. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a good example, I guess. <laughs> no,
1: it is. But I think, look, it's interesting to see how people see Ukraine, how they're located mm-hmm. into it. And I think part of the way you see Ukraine depends on how central um whiteness europeanness is to your sense of who you are mm. It certainly makes you know this uh, it must be a mockery of the highest order for Afghanis and Iraqis just to name two examples or Palestinians to name another um to say, well, you know, how terrible occupations are, et cetera, et cetera, and nothing can be done about them, and all of these kinds of things. And we often dismiss this as double standards and hypocrisy. Um, but I think they're a bit more than that. Okay. I don't think they're just uh, hypocrisy and double standards. I think they're fundamentally different ways of looking at the world and they are actually quite problematic. And part of the struggle for hegemony is to allow the kind of Eurocentric vision of the world, which is its own narrative of what's placed in the world, to be the only way of understanding the world. So universalism then is a name for that process where you say that um, you are the measure of all things.
0: Mm.
1: And the trouble with being the measure of all things is that it cannot be measured. Mm. Uh, And therefore, you know, that's where the problems come into it. And I think these are... So when you have, um, you know, I would imagine fair-minded commentators and, 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 and academics and politicians doing somersaults, to distinguish what is happening in the Ukraine from what has been happening in the rest of the world, Uh, intellectual somersaults, Uh, underneath it all, there's a certain kind of misrecognition of why are people even wondering that this is a problem?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Why are they thinking it's a problem? And it doesn't seem to make any sense that this should be a problem. Um, And, you know, you can see this in various statements like, you know, um, people would make, well, um, the United States always keeps its treaty obligations unlike the others. I mean, again, you know, you have to have a certain amount of invincible ignorance to accept that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or the idea of, um, you know, how different narratives or the idea of the narrative that the United States or Europe are always on the side of freedom. Ask the people in the the Arabian Peninsula about who their allies are, who are supported by who. Um, So I think these kinds of narratives are central to um, the project of um, Eurocentricism, And what they do is try and, create the european or western template as the means of reading the world and in doing so it cannot then be itself subject to the means of reading the world in a way and that's where the tension comes in and that's why it's always the internal critiques of europe that are seen as destabilizing that position Mm. Um, but the real issue is this that the universal values are so become so inert, so inherent in the construction of the West, um, that it's almost difficult to allow for the provincialization of the West, which would be actually decolonizing in itself, because it would actually mean a proper decolonization of the West itself and, and opening up a new possibilities of being Western or being a part of the world rather than apart from the world. Okay. Okay, Professor Side, that was <laughs> another interesting discussion,
0: uh, but I think we'll uh, end it there for today. Thank you very much. Thank you, yes, Issa. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.